0: Welcome to the PT and OT connection podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform. Hi, and welcome to the PT and OT Connection podcast
1: by Summit Professional Education. My name is Nikki Dawson, and I'm a PT, and I'm going to be the host of today's podcast, Helping Them Stay on Their Feet, Looking at Comprehensive Falls Management and Our Geriatric Rehabilitation. Uh, I'm hoping uh, that we can provide some information for you from uh, the American Geriatric Society's uh, fall guidelines, our APTA um, clinical guidance statement, and the new uh, clinical guidance statement that came out from um, a nice world expert panel over the last year, and that we can get some information out to you that you can use pretty immediately in the clinic uh, as a PT, PTA, OT, or CODA. Uh, We're gonna be talking about falls demography uh, and its impact on the economy and healthcare. Uh, It it is a global crisis right now. um, And as PTs and OTs, we really play a critical role in helping to manage falls. We're gonna spend most of the podcast looking at the comprehensive assessment of risk factors, because really that is the most important part of falls management, is really identifying the risk factors uh, that our patients have. And then we will talk about um, documenting this falls risk uh, as well as uh, developing an indiv- individualized plan of care based on our assessment. Um, and that's really the easy part because, you know, really what we know is after we do our evaluation, we treat what we find. So again, that's why we spend, you know, a lot of time uh, talking about falls management in the assessment. In the assessment phase, and this will be this will be appropriate for both evaluating clinicians, you know, and treating clinicians, because our treating clinicians spend most of the time with the patient. So there may be things that, um, you know, don't illuminate during the initial assessment, uh, and that come into light a little later, maybe at visit three or four, or even a few weeks into. You know, treatment. So, you know, we have to have a good understanding um, regardless of where we are in our plan of care you know how to identify these risk factors. So there is a, a resource guide um that will accompany accompany this this podcast. Uh, you know, I won't I'll refer to it some, but you might be driving or listening to this on a plane or you know wherever where you don't have access to that. So it's not going to be crucial for you to be looking at uh, that resource guide, but it does have, you know, some visuals for you um, that might be helpful. I think initially, um, you know, the most important thing for us to, again, talk about is, you know, our role in comprehensive falls management. It was really interesting as I moved from outpatient, which is where I started my career, um, into skilled nursing, you know, I really realized that falls do fall on us as rehab professionals, uh, which I didn't really understand why that is. Um, you know, I I remember a nurse once t- asking me, you know, is Louise going to fall? And me responding, I don't know. Why are you asking me? Um, And she's like, well, you're the PT. Um, and, And I quickly realized there that, you know, there's this urban legend that's out there about falls, that falls equals balance. And I'm hoping that one of the things that this podcast will help you do is understand that that's absolutely not true. There's so much more to falls. Uh, than just balance, and so that's where, you know, this comprehensive management, um, you know, really comes into play, and so our role, you know, is usually in that strength, mobility, balance, um, you know, But I would love for us to take a larger role when it comes to falls, you know, because people kind of defer to us anyways, but we need to be able to look at more or either help guide the rest of the interdisciplinary team, um, to help us identify these other risk factors. So we're definitely going to talk more about that. Um, but again, I want you to listen to this podcast, you know, either through the lens of being a leader. Of an interdisciplinary team um, and being able to help that interdisciplinary team um, get this full assessment, or you know, as a solo practitioner that's going to look at the comprehensive uh, risk factors on their own, which is totally fine, because oftentimes an outpatient, really, you're doing this alone. Or, you know, if you're in a home care environment, and you don't have a big team, you know, that you're doing this alone. So again, listening to, to this through that lens. So let's start with, as we talk about falls' demography and its economic impact, let's first define falls. What is it? you know And we think about you know a few different places we can look, and the CDC uh, defines a fall as a person descending abruptly due to the force of gravity and striking a surface at the same or lower level. so let's pull that apart a little bit and have an understanding of what are we talking about here. Um, It really is in, you know, my view, an uncontrolled descent due to a loss of balance. So someone loses their balance, you know, and they use a stepping strategy or even a reaching strategy to catch themselves on the wall. You know, that's not really a fall. That's a loss of balance that was corrected. But sometimes you'll hear a patient say, you know, I lost my balance, but I didn't fall because the wall was there. Or the chair was there, or the bed was there. I landed on the recliner. So these are things that concern me because it sounds like a very uncontrolled descent, right, Um, that required external correction, either from that piece of furniture, from the wall, from their husband, from whomever. So by definition, that actually would be a fall. Um, And so you know, I don't tell you this so you can, you know, pick on your patients or, you know, berate them and, and, you know, really get them to admit that they fell. I think it's important because the number one risk factor for a fall is a previous fall. So if you have a patient who, you know, had a fall within the last 12 months, you know, or the last six months, you know, then there's a really big concern that um, they're at high risk for another fall, okay? So let's quickly talk about why patients don't tell us, though, that they fall. Let's think about that. You know, I hear often, you know, that the patients might be embarrassed, um, which is possible, but the number one reason that our patients don't tell us is because they're concerned about losing their independence. So what we know as we age, um, you know, our triggers for anxiety change a little bit and our, our triggers for worry, you know, when we're younger, we worry about love and relationships and money and work, you know, which is, which is very true. However, when we age, our number one, you know, trigger for worry is losing our independence. So that is why most often older adults aren't telling us that they fell because they're concerned, you know, that they might lose their independence. So here's what I want you to think about is what do we do as a health as a healthcare system when someone tells us that they fall, you know, think about that unfortunately, we strip away their independence oftentimes, right? We tell them that, you know, they're now a safety risk and and they're going to require 24-hour supervision or, you know, they need to move into an assisted living facility or their daughter needs to live with them or whatever. And so think about that. If, you know, their worst fear is losing their independence and that's exactly what we do, I kind of wouldn't tell us either, you know, because it, it really is... It's their worst fear come true. And and here's what I want you to also think about. I want you to challenge, I want to challenge you a little bit as we're going to talk is stripping their independence and, you know, requiring them to have 24 hour supervision doesn't actually work. Um, And if it worked, I'd be all for it. But if it worked, people that lived with their daughters or people that lived in assisted livings or people that had 24-hour caregivers wouldn't fall. Um, And that's just, we all know that that's just inaccurate. Um, And so how do we fix it? You know, I've never really heard a healthcare professional say to a patient, I'm so sorry that you're falling. That must be really scary. Why don't we do a comprehensive assessment and figure out why you're falling? But that's the answer, guys. That's what we need to be doing is it's not their fault that they're falling. You know, they're not doing wild and crazy things around their house. They're just getting up and going to the refrigerator or they're getting up and going to the bathroom or they're getting up and going to their, to, you know, to the mail. Because we do know that most falls, you know, happen during their normal routine activities and so but what's happening as we're going to talk about is you know there's multiple risk factors you know that are coming together into a perfect storm to lead to that fall and so we need to come at this a little bit differently and again as rehab providers i'd like us to lead this charge because i think we spend a lot of time with the patients i think caregivers and patients trust us and i think we're in a really great position you know to really make a big change here Okay, so let's talk about, um, you know, some of the facts here and what we what we see when it comes to falls. There are a lot of falls that are happening, you know, one in three to four older adults fall every year. And that number really has been the same since the beginning of time, um, at least as I feel. So how do we move that number? You know, let's think about what's going on here. Um, And how can we have a biggest impact when it comes to falls? I think there's two reasons, you know, that this is happening. And one is, is that our healthcare system is pretty reactive, you know, when it comes to falls. We wait for someone to fall before we intervene. We're not actually actively, you know, pursuing a falls prevention. And I think, again, as rehab professionals, this is a place where we've always talked about getting involved in health promotion and prevention and things. And I think falls prevention is a really great place to start. And we'll talk about that here a little bit more, you know, but falls do cost the healthcare system a lot of money. So as we talk about documentation, um, Insurance companies will pay us if we've outlined someone is at risk for falls. Okay. So, thinking about medical necessity, that's what Medicare requires, you know, that we are able to justify as medical necessity and our skill. And I've just already told you that if someone's told you that they've fallen, they're at high risk for another fall. You've actually just justified medical necessity because one of the criteria for medical necessity uh, through Medicare and most of the Medicare affiliates, because they follow Medicare, poly- you know, know guidelines is that you have to show that the patient is at risk for injury or illness so they don't have to have already been hurt they don't have to already you know have bad stuff going on they just have to be at risk and we have a lot of you know different measures available to us that we'll talk about you know that can help us identify that our patient's at risk so we really just need to identify that. And then also, you know, this number when it comes to falls isn't really changing much because also the number of older adults that we have is growing. So, you know, not only is the prevalence not changing, but we have the number of older adults exponentially rising, you know, so if you look at, you know, the one graph I have, it's really kind of gut wrenching to think that in the next, you know, 10 years, we're going to have seven older adults die every hour from a fall. You know, I just think that that's something that needs to be intervened upon, and we just need to start doing this better, you know, as a healthcare system. So these facts are a little bit overwhelming, but I think if we can take a systematic approach, you know, we really could have a really great impact. And again, as rehab professionals, I would love to see us take the lead here, okay? So again, looking at the comprehensive management of of falls, most falls are occurring during their normal routine activities. You know, it's 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 they're falling at home, you know, they're falling in their yard, they're falling going to the grocery store, they're falling, um, you know, they're not they're not doing really unsafe, um, impulsive things. I, I hear us talk about that a little bit. And I don't think that that necessarily they're truly impulsive, which is really a cognitive dysfunction. You know, it's just that you know, they need to be performing their activities of daily living and maybe their body is not up to snuff, which is again where we can come in as rehab professionals and make such a big difference. And we know that falls are, you know, multifactorial, which again is why this comprehensive assessment is so crucial is because when we look and we ask a patient maybe, why did you fall? What happened? They oftentimes have no idea, right? They're just like, I don't know. I just kind of was standing there and then I wasn't. Um, And it's because they don't necessarily know. Shoot, I could be watching them and they could fall and I really don't know what's happening. It's because oftentimes we have two, three, maybe even four different risk factors that kind of come together together um, to, to cause that individual fall and so really our job isn't necessarily to figure out what happened with that fall It's to prevent the next one, you know, but it would also be great if we can prevent the first one um, You know through some of our assessments and some of our other things, you know, because falls are common They're predictable, but they are preventable um, And it's really also important to talk about the fact that they're not a normal part of aging So let's think about, you know, how in the world do we even think about stopping this first fall? Again, it's about the prevention, right? Um... So let's think about what tools we might have available to us or, you know, what evidence we might have available to us to allow us to step into fall prevention. So I'm not sure if you guys know this or not, but uh, there is a best practice guideline out there by the American Geriatric Society, and it is reinforced by the new uh, world guidelines that were just put out in 2022, that all older adults should be screened and or evaluated for a fall every year, at least. You know, this isn't happening. Um, Also, the American Physical Therapy Association, you know, they, um, through the APTA Geriatrics, recommend all older adults have a physical therapy visit every year at minimum. So we have two things right there that allow us to get involved in patients Who really otherwise wouldn't necessarily see us, you know, and when we have these, these national organizations putting out these guidelines, that really gives us a lot of power, you know, behind these recommendations that we make, you know, so let's think about it, how do we get these people, you know, it's not like we're going to be going door to door saying, let's talk about falls, or let's talk about rehab, you know, we have to figure out, you know, where they are and where they're going, because they certainly aren't coming to us every year. But where are they going every year? One of the best things that has happened in recent years is the implementation of the Medicare wellness visit. So older adults are definitely, you know, going to their primary care physicians or their geriatricians for their annual wellness visit, which is really, really great. Um, So we might have an in here. So let's think about it. We certainly aren't going to be able to think that the physician is going to have time to do the things that we need done. However, what we can do is educate this physician on what we just talked about, you know, the fact that, Older adults should have a fall risk screening and or assessment every year, that they should have a rehab visit every year. So we know that the physicians aren't going to have time to do these things, but as part of their annual wellness visit, is it possible that that can include a referral to us as rehab professionals so that we can see these patients, right? And then step two of the master plan is once we have them, is to manage them. You know, instead of discharging our patients and just saying, you know, like nails on a chalkboard to me is, I hope to never see you again, (laughs) right? They're 87. Of course, you're going to see them again. Um, You know, we're not sending them on their merry way and saying, you know, good luck. We need to manage that patient based on their risk factors and based on their fall risk profile. So let's say that I have someone who looks great. You know, they, they don't have a lot of risk factors. They're doing really well. You know, I may not need to see that patient for another year, you know, but if I have someone who has multiple risk factors and needs really close watch, I might choose to see them in three months, you know, after they're done with their initial plan of care, I might want to follow up with them in three months. And, and this model is pretty normal in healthcare. Cause think about it, when you go to your physician and maybe you had a sinus infection or he or he or she started you on a new blood pressure medication, you know, they're not like, I hope to never see you again. Right. They say, you know, let's follow up in six months or let's follow up in a year. I'll see you at your next, you know, your next, um, you know, annual, we need to be doing the same thing with our patients and, and you know, instead of, of course, we're still going to write discharge summaries, but instead of saying we're discharging them, we're ending an episode of care. You know, if they meet their goals and they do those things, we're going to end this episode of care, and then we're going to talk to them about when we want to see them again. You know, rather than just sending them away, because oftentimes you, I'll hear therapists say all the time, you know, I knew they were going to fall, I knew they were going to fall. I gave them like four months. You know, then my response is, why didn't we follow up with them then in three months to help mitigate those risk factors that. Could could have potentially popped up, you know, in those, in those months and help keep that risk as low as possible. You know, that's something that we can do. And you're just going to, you know, you're going to talk about that in your discharge. So, you know, I'm going to say patient has met all their goals. You know, we're ending this episode of care. However, you know, due to this risk factor, this risk factor, and this risk factor, you know, I'm going to follow up with that patient again in three months, or I'm going to follow up with that patient again in six months or if my patient again looks good i'm going to say i'm going to follow that follow up with them again for their annual wellness you know, or their annual fall risk assessment, or their annual physical therapy visit next year, um, and then you, you're going to advise the patient to you know call you if you if you have any troubles in between. You know, then and now, of course. Um, so I hope that that makes sense. And this is something that you know I do on a regular basis, and I have many colleagues, um, you know, that that follow this model. And physicians are actually very appreciative. Because now as you talk to your physicians, you know, they have an extra set of eagle eyes on this, you know, pretty high risk and, and pretty complex patient. So it really comes down to having conversations and increased communication, you know, with your physicians. And again, most of them are not going to have any trouble um, you know, backing the things that you do and signing off on your plan of cares you know because again, as you know with medicare we don 't necessarily need a referral. Per se, but we do need them to sign on our plan of care. So, you know, they have to have a good understanding about what you're going to be doing, you know, with your patient. So, what does this assessment look like that we're talking about? Um, Let's first talk about the screening. You know, the screening is really just four questions looking at their risk. So, it's asking about an acute fall, it's asking whether or not they've had falls within the last year. It's asking if they're worried about falling, so a fear of falling or a lack of balance confidence, Um, and it also asks, you know, if they're having any balance or gait difficulties. Um, So why we said that balance does not equal falls, you know, if if they're having those, they are certainly at a higher risk. So, you know, if they answer yes to any of these questions, the screening, you know, then we definitely need to move forward because according to our guidelines, they are at high risk. Now, within the New World Organization's um, guidelines, Anybody that actually lives in residential care doesn't even need a screening. They should, it's assumed that they are already at high risk, and they should just move into. Um, a regularly, a regularly intervaled assessment. Um, So the screening isn't even necessary uh, for those, for those patients. Um, So that's really the main difference in these new recommendations that I've seen um, is really even saying people that live in skilled nursing, people that live in even um, ALF, um, they really are already classified as high risk. So therefore, these regular intervals and management of their falls is crucial. Okay. So talking about this assessment, um, you know, I I really like using the steady program from the CDC. So if you're not familiar with the study program, I highly recommend that you look at their website. Um, It's really it's it's S T E A D I. So stopping elderly accidents, deaths and injuries. And it's really easy to find because if you Google steady CDC, it's the first thing that's going to pop up. And what's interesting is this website, it's so rich, you know, many programs, you know, end up kind of going away. But the study program is actually growing on a regular basis. There's so many modules that have been added. Um, the the resources are regularly updated. Uh, it, it's really a great program. And they even have you know, what's called a a coordinated care plan. So it's aggregated a lot of the research that has come out in the last six or seven years on the study program, and it's organized it into an approach that as a clinician, you can take and implement this program into your facility. talks about implementing and integrating it into your EMR system for documentation, talks about finding a champion kind of in multiple disciplines and getting a task force together Um, Because that's going to be really important, as you're going to see as we go through some of these risk factors, that some of it is outside of our scope of practice to treat, right? We can still do the screening, you know, but then we need help in managing those medical um, risk factors. And so being able to identify someone from the medical team, from the nursing team, pharmacy is crucial, you know, the nursing assistants, all of those folks need to be part of the big plan um, because we need their help in implementing our ultimate, plan of care, uh, based on uh, the assessment that we do. So I really encourage you guys to go look at the CDC website for the steady program and really kind of tour yourself through, um, the, the website. I will tell you, it's kind of a rabbit hole, um, I would start with the clinical resources and the patient and caregiver resources. That's where all the downloadable uh, forms and brochures are um, that you can use during your assessment and during some of your patient education. And then, heck, I even say use it for some marketing, you know, because if you're going to be going to these physician's offices and doing some education with them about fall prevention and your role um, in helping them manage falls, you know, you can take some of the brochures with you, Uh, with your contact information or your logo, you know, and then that way patients that are sitting in the waiting room, you know, are able to also educate themselves and advocate for themselves, you know, when they go in and see their physician or, you know, you can leave some at the senior center or, you know, at the YMCA or different places, you know, to really help some older adults gather information for themselves. And again, be able to advocate for themselves. Okay. So, The study program has a very nice fall risk factors checklist. So when I'm doing a fall risk assessment, you know, right now my uh, area is mostly outpatient. I'd consider it outpatient. So, you know, I'm faculty at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. uh, And so I see patients through my lab uh, most often. And so they're coming in from the community. um, And so, you know, it's, it's kind of considered more of an outpatient type um, you know, setting. But when I have somebody coming in to do a fall risk assessment, the first thing I do is pull out my fall risk checklist, my study checklist, and this is going to guide my entire assessment. And so what we're going to look at is, again, the fall's history. So we're going to do kind of that screening. And then associated with each of these, you know, I may have an associated assessment tool that I might use. So if I ask my patient if they're worried about falling and they say yes, I'm going to check yes. And then I might choose to use a measure that 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 really quantifies their fear of falling or that worry, and we'll talk about a few of those, um, you know, here in, in a minute. I, I'll go through a few of the different, um, you know, assessment tools that we might have available to us. Um, then past medical history. So again, these medical conditions, looking at comorbid status. So most of this we're just screening again i'm not able to treat their orthostatic hypotension or i'm not able to treat their depression however i'm able to look at those things and screen them so for instance if i'm concerned that a patient might be depressed or have depressive symptoms, I can screen that in the guise of fall risk, because that's what the patient's here for. So I might use something like the geriatric depression scale short form, you know, which is a 15 item, yes, no, uh, and I might administer that. And here's the thing is I'm not diagnosing my patient with depression, but right on the bottom gives us some out, some cutoff scores of what might be concerning of depressive symptoms. So if they score a five, you know, out of 15, that's concerning. If they score a nine out of 15, that's really concerning. And then I'm going to be able to provide information to the physician, you know, that I'm going to need some assistance in having that further assessed because that can be putting our patient at risk for falls. Okay. So we have, you know, through the checklist, we're going to, we're going to go through all of the different medical conditions, you know, that might be causing issues. And we're going to check yes, no, and then make comments. Okay. And then we're going to go through into a medication review. So You know, when we're in doing home care or opening the OASIS or doing different things, we're very good as rehab professionals at doing what's called a medication reconciliation. So this is very different than that. A medication reconciliation is what medications are they taking, uh, you know, what medications should they be taking and do those match? Well, medication review for fall risk is taking that a step further, and we need to see if any of those medications that they're taking actually put them at risk for falls. And to help us do that, we have a nice resource called the Beers Criteria. So the Beers Criteria is from the American Geriatric Society, and what it does for us is it gives us a list and outlines medications that might be potentially, Uh, inappropriate for use for with older adults because of the high risk for adverse events so these adverse events there's really four different categories of adverse events you know that i see when it comes to the beers criteria you know one is gastrointestinal issues like ulcers and gi bleeds you know one is about metabolic issues through the liver and the kidneys one is cognitive you know uh, dysfunction or impairment and then the, the one of them is fall risk and so you know the beers list outlines all of those medications for us that put people at risk and some of them are listed here and then again i told you that the study program is growing and one of the places that they've grown is in um, a program called steady rx so it has an entire training module for pharmacists, um, and so you're able to also go look at that just to educate yourself further, um, you know. But they understand the the high importance of a pharmacist and medications in. Um, managing fall risk and they have a really good resource that's called the community fall risk checklist and it's for pharmacists and it lists all of the medications that are potentially concerning and asks the pharmacist to review the patient's med list to see if they're on any of these. So oftentimes you know I'm not the one doing this medication review during my evaluation you know I might be sending this list um, or the community checklist the pharmacy checklist over to their Pharmacist. You know, so this is why, you know, when I said earlier, the task force or, you know, the committee, you know, that you have at your facility, a pharmacist has to be on it because in an acute care setting, you know, you have a pharmacist that's reviewing that patient's med list, you know, and so are we able to ascertain whether or not any of those medications are putting that patient at a very high risk? And that can get communicated with the physician. Um, And so, again, medications are something that are really important um, to. look at. Because again, we might not be the ones looking at all of these things. It might be another member of the team. You know, however, we have to really understand why all of these things are so important. Okay. So we're going to be looking at prescription over the counter and supplements. You know, the BEERS criteria really review mostly the prescription medications. However, all of the other medications, you know, are really, really crucial as well. Okay. Now, looking at gait strength and balance, looking at physical performance, you know, this is kind of our bread and butter. Um, and so I think it's really important for us to do a deep dive, you know, when it comes to this. Now, the study checklist has some recommended measures um, also in this uh, domain. Um, and I use some of them, but some of them, again, I, I kind of use a little bit deeper, um, functional assessments in that I have to intervene on these. So I need a little bit more information sometimes than, you know, the the measures that are just recommended by the study checklist um, offer me. So I might do a couple more balance assessments. I might choose a different gait assessment. You know, I might choose something different. And we'll also talk about fear of falling here too. But, you know, when it comes to strength, you know, one of the reasons that it's really important to look at strength is because as our older adults age, you know, we have sarcopenia and dinopenia that come from that musculoskeletal and neuromuscular systems. So without any intervention, our patients will get weak. Um, that is just a part of normal aging. And so there's nothing wrong with them. They haven't done anything wrong. But if they're not doing strength training on a regular basis, their strength will decline due to normal aging. So again, this is why that prevention is so important because oftentimes, you know, we're doing catastrophic management, you know, when now they can't get out of a chair anymore. But if we would have been evaluating that patient on a regular basis, we would have been able to predict... And intervene upon that potentially years before you know they had any of those problems and that's the that's the big issue when it comes to these you know annual assessments is they have to be done because oftentimes they're going to catch you know many of these risk factors before they actually become a problem so again if our older adults aren't doing regular strength training as recommended by the American College of Sports Medicine or as recommended by the CDC, they will get weak with normative aging. And the way we uh, evaluate strength, there's two measures for us. So general lower extremity strength, we're going to be looking at the, the chair stand test, And so we could either use the five-time chair stand test or the 30-second chair stand test. Those are gonna be our best measures. You know, I use the 30-second chair stand test most frequently and that's what's recommended by the study program. We also can look at the heel rise test because plantar flexor strength is really, really important when it comes to gait and balance. Um, And so, you know, looking at the heel rise test, you know, being able to see if that power, you know, is available to our patients, you know, can really help talk to us about why they might have a shuffling gait pattern or, you know, why they're not picking up their feet. Um, you know, because that power is so important, um, because of sarcopenia and, and changes in the neuromuscular system. Okay. Now, when it comes to balance, Wow, balance is, is again, one of the most important parts of looking at this portion. But again, balance does not equal fall risk. I think this is so important to understand that there are multiple systematic reviews um, that are out there right now that really caution rehab professionals in using balance assessments to diagnose fall risk because most of these measures have a very low diagnostic accuracy. And so how do we know that? Is we know that through two numbers that come with whatever cutoff score that we've assigned to that to that assessment, and those numbers are specificity and sensitivity. So if you've never heard of those, I'm going to talk about them here briefly because I think it's so important, is specificity helps us understand how good a test is at identifying someone at risk, okay? And sensitivity tells us how good that measure is at ruling that patient out for risk, and so let's say, you know, we're you know, one of the one of the things we can talk about is the Tinetti, you know, gait and balance. Is it's probably one of the most commonly used fall risk assessments that we have in rehab, and there's actually research that's emerging to tell us to stop using it because the specificity and sensitivity is so low. So, you know, we have a cutoff score on that for nine, as of 19. 19 is the cutoff score that we're all told and that we're all given. And what we do is we make the assumption that that test is perfect and, you know, that anyone who scores above a 19 is good and anyone who scores a, a below a 19 isn't good. And unfortunately, that is not how you can read these tests, you know, because the diagnostic accuracy of those tests is so important to understand. And we do that through specificity and sensitivity. And the specificity and sensitivity for the Teneti is in the mid 60%. And here's what I want you to understand. What that means is that if someone, you know, using this cutoff score of 19, if someone scores below a 19 and you say, yes, they're going to fall, you're only correct about 64% of the time. So again, it is you. It's not a perfect cutoff, and the other way is even a little scary too. Is because you know somebody scores above a nineteen, and you say you're good, your balance is fine, you're not going to fall. Again, about sixty-five percent of the time you're correct, but thirty-five percent of the time you're incorrect. So you're telling, you know, you're kind of ruling this person out as a fall risk, but you're doing that you know, kind of to me at your own peril because, you know, a 65% specificity, 65% sensitivity in this case is really just too low to be able to, you know, be able to say those things. Um, So hopefully you guys can dive in a little bit more to specificity and sensitivity and really understand it. But I hope, you know, that I was able to help you a little bit because, you know, we don't have a lot of measures actually in rehab that do a great job at predicting fall risk, you know, because what we have are we have gait and balance measures, right? That are used to predict falls. And I've already told you that, Balance does not equal falls. The steady checklist is what we need to be using to ascertain someone's fall risk. Yeah, balance can help, but it's only one small piece of that puzzle. Okay. So, what we have available to us are some tests, you know, like the four square step test, you know, that's a measure of dynamic balance. You know, and that actually has a pretty high specificity and sensitivity. You know, we have our functional reach test. You know, that has a cutoff score of of eight um, inches, and it has a specificity and sensitivity again that isn't too shabby. It's in the seventy and eighty percent range. Um, and then we have something a little bit higher level for some of our higher level folks um, is the Fullerton Advanced Balance Scale. Um, you know, and you can use the Taneti. Um, But again, use it for our lower level gait and balance measures, you know, rather than truly using it for fall risk. So, you know, you can, again, balance on the study checklist is just one checkmark. It doesn't tell us everything. It's just going to be one of those things that tells us, do we need to intervene on balance? Is balance a risk factor? That's all I want us using these tests for. Not taking that balance test and then using it to globally define whether or not somebody's a fall risk. We're using it as a piece of the puzzle, okay? Same for gait and mobility. We have gait speed, which to me, you know, and much of the research out there is our single most important parameter of gait that we have available to us when it, when we talk about health and function. You know, there's a really great article um, by Stacy Fritz and Michelle Lusardi that call it the sixth vital sign. You know, and there's multiple other articles that talk about the importance of identifying gait speed in trying to predict someone's changes in health and function. So looking at both comfortable and fast gait speed with something like the four meter walk test um, can be really helpful for us. You know, we have our timed up and go. That does also have a cutoff score, and the specificity and sensitivity on that is about 87% for both, so that's not too bad. And then we have other measures like the dynamic gait index, and I would love to see more acute care therapists using the dynamic gait index because it actually provides us some information about functional mobility and functional ambulation, how someone negotiates obstacles, how they're able to step over obstacles, how they're able to turn you know, how they're able to navigate their speed and modulate their speed, you know, during normal ambulation. These are things that are really much more important than just saying that someone can walk 250 feet, which really there's no research to support the use of distance in anything we do. It's all about speed you know, it's all about the the negotiation, um, you know, in their environment. It's about divided attention. It's about lots of other things other than distance, you know, distance really doesn't matter. And I don't use it in any of my avows. You know, I hear a lot of people say that we have to use distance because that's what case managers are telling us that we have to do, you know, and I challenge you guys a little bit because, you know, I've already, you know, we've kind of already said that, you know, medical necessity is really what you need need to, to identify, you know, and if you're able to use these measures to outline medical necessity, then the fact that they can walk 250 feet is actually irrelevant. And I think that's important to advocate for your patient, you know, because I'll oftentimes, you know, say that to a case manager when they tell me that, you know, if someone can walk more than 250 feet, they can't go to rehab. You know and and I'll challenge that case manager, and I'll just say, "Can you show me you know where in the patient's insurance benefits it says that because we're we're telling a patient that they don't have access to benefits that they're entitled to um and, by false information, and that's just not okay." I'll also ask the case manager, you know, can you show me in the admissions criteria for the facility where it says that if they can walk 250 feet, they can't go there? And, you know, it's just not there. This is just another one of those kind of urban legends, if you will, um, you know, that have kind of come through. There's nowhere in the Medicare manual does it talk about distance, not even when it comes to home care. You know, when you look up the definition of homebound, You know, it really is more about effort. So homebound, the definition of homebound is that someone cannot leave their home without considerable and taxing effort. So again, it's nothing about distance. And I would argue that if someone's gait speed was very slow or that their strength was very low, that that would make them ambulate with considerable and taxing effort. And so you don't need the distance in there to be able to justify that medical necessity or to be able to justify homebound status. So I think these are things that are really important for us to understand as rehab professionals is really you know, what do we need to justify in order to get our patient kind of moving forward with their benefits? And it really is mostly about medical necessity. Most payers, you know, that we will deal with in the geriatric community do follow Medicare guidelines. Some don't. And so you just have to be clear. There's some that it's 20 visits, you know, no matter what. Um, and so it's really important to really understand what that insurance company needs from you, um, to be able to get that patient, the benefits that they need. Um, you know, so I encourage you guys to talk to, you know, your admissions people, your front desk, um, your case managers, and really, you know, not just harp on this distance, but really understand that medical necessity. Okay. Then we also have, you know, as we kind of move down the study checklist is we have vision Um, through, you know, so different somatosensory issues. I also will add sensation, you know, to be concerned if there's any peripheral neuropathies, you know, that can be important when it comes to balance as well Um, and other, you know, issues as related to gait and falls. So looking at their vision, whether or not using a Snellen chart for visual acuity, or oftentimes I'll just ask the patient if, you know, they're having any visual impairments that are affecting their ability to function. Um, Because research tells us that useful field of vision um, you know, and you can measure that with a confrontation test or, or you know, other computerized generated field of vision um, is actually the best predictor of falls, um, and it's not necessarily visual acuity. And then also, you know, depth perception or contrast sensitivity are really important with just overall function. So sometimes I'll just ask whether or not they're having any deficits, because again, I'm not necessarily intervening upon that. What my goal is here is to screen it. And to see if it needs further evaluation for fall risk. So if I have a patient who says, yes, I'm having some visual deficits, you know, then I'm going to refer that back to the physician. um, And so they can have conversations with their physician um, and maybe get those visual impairments rectified. Okay. Okay. And then I also add to the study checklist, you know, a home assessment or an environmental assessment if I can. You know, there's sometimes where you're not able to do that because of your setting. But of course, if you're in home care, very easy to do. Um, You know, the study program does have a home safety checklist um, as one of its um, brochures or one of its kind of, you know, handouts. So even if you're an outpatient or in acute care Or even in in skilled nursing, if you can't go do a home evaluation, you know, you can provide some education to the patient and or their caregiver about environmental assessment and and have them, you know, go back and maybe look at some things or take some pictures for you or, you know, so you might be able to help, um, you know, make that home environment a little bit safer. Um, and sometimes it's difficult because sometimes patients, you know, don't want modifications to their home. And so I think, you know, you just have to decide, you know, about this person environment fit. We either need to change the environment or we need to change the person. So yeah, if they don't want to pick up their throw rugs, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not always married to that because what I hopefully can actually do is make them stronger and make their mobility better to where they can navigate that throat rug instead of us having to pick it up. Um, And so my goal might be if they have a lot of throw rugs to do a lot of stepping and a lot of obstacle negotiation and a lot of different, you know, different things to help them navigate their environment. So in that case, I'm going to try to bring the person up to match the environment rather than bring down the environment to match the person. You know, it really is all about that person environment fit or that P.E. fit, um, you know, understanding that environment. Okay, so that's the study checklist. And so now as we kind of move into our documentation talking about this, you know, what we got to do is easily make all the yeses, you know, no, as we move into our documentation and our interventions. But what I need to do is, you know, identify all the risk factors. So what are the risk factors? And I need to quantify them. So for instance, you know, if we did a 30 second chair stand test, you know, I need to be able to say that they scored a four on the 30 second chair stand test, but for whoever's reading that, I need to say, what does that mean? So I might just put in parentheses that the age and gender norm is 11 to 15. So that person can really see that there's some weakness there, you know, or on the functional reach, you know, I already told you that a cutoff score for that is eight inches. So if my patient only scores three inches, you know, I can say that that's much less than the fall risk cutoff of eight, but it's also much less than the age and gender norm for, you know, my 67 year old male of 14.9 inches. And so I'm now able to tell this story about my patient um, and their deficits. I'm going to do the same for, you know, non- Um, mobility things. So if my, again, my patient scored, you know, a a 10 on the geriatric depression scale, you know, I'm going to say anything, anything greater than a nine is a significant concern, um, you know, for depressive symptoms and fall risk. And so that needs to be evaluated. Okay, and then I'm going to send and talk to the patient about this, of course, and then anything that is outside of my scope of practice, you know, I'm going to be sure to alert the physician and send that patient back to their physician. And so in the resources on slides nine and 10, you know, I gave you guys a little wording um, that I use, you know, I, I I, I make my typical assessment, you know, that says, you know, that the patient was referred to me and, and, you know, kind of, I use the ICF model. Um, to outline the health condition the impairments the activity limitations and the participation restrictions um, which is what Medicare wants us to do so I tell that story and again I tell that story using objective data that I just collected um, you know through my assessment and then I also add a second part that says you know as part of this comprehensive fall risk assessment you know I found some other things um, that I think might be beneficial for you and I wanted to alert you of those and that's where I'm going to put any of the medical issues, um, you know, that, that I found. So maybe vision, orthostatic hypotension, um, you know, some decreases in their sensation, you know, those kinds of different things I'm going to talk about, um, you know, at that point. Uh, And then I'm going to let the patient know that I want them to go back and see their physician. And I'm going to also call their physician and let their physician know that I'm sending them back because I don't want that physician to be irritated, you know, that they just sent us a patient and we're sending them right back and we, we need them to know why you know, is that we need their help, that we've identified these issues, um, you know, during our comprehensive fall risk assessment, and we really need their help to bring down and, and reduce the risk in some of these medical issues that are really outside of our scope of practice, okay? So let's talk about that. You know, when we talk about the clinical guidance statement that was put out by the physical therapy, you know, by, by APTA, now there is, there's an updated one that's coming, um, you know, within the next year or so. Uh, so look for that. But this is the one that we have available to us right now. And then also I have uh, in your resources the algorithm um, from the study program. It's not the most recent one because the most recent one, um, it's great and it says very similar things. It's just not as, to me, as aesthetically pleasing. So I keep I keep the old one um, in, my, in my packets because I just like it better. Um, and, and the nice thing is, is the algorithm from the study program and the clinical guidance statement from physical therapy actually match, um, so it really is nice what it what it says. So when we're when we're thinking about you know bringing forward our interventions. You know, it's talking about this multi-component intervention based on the evaluative findings. So again, this is why we spent so much time looking at that assessment is because now it becomes easy. You treat what you find. You take all those yeses. And you try to make them know. And we're going to do that together, you know, as an interdisciplinary team. So we're going to conduct that multifactorial assessment, which we did. And then anything that's outside of our scope of practice, we're referring out. Okay. And then anything that's within our scope of practice, we're going to go ahead and treat. Um, that's really what these clinical guidance statements are saying is, you know, nobody can really answer. I, I get lots of people, you know, that will ask me questions about, you know, what's the best way for my – what were what the best exercises for my mom because she's falling? It's not the right question because here's the problem is – I don't know that exercises are what your mom needs without doing a comprehensive fall assessment. Because what if it's a medication? What if she's on six medications that are on beer's criteria for fall risk? What if she has orthostatic hypotension? Because guess what, guys? I can make her balance and gait the best ever, but if she has a single episode, she's going down. You know, what if it's a vision issue? So I had this once where, you know, it was a, a guy was in his early 60s And he came to our lab and he looked like he just went 10 rounds with Rocky Balboa and he was falling three times a week. Right. And so sitting and talking to him, I didn't even need to do any assessments to know that it was a vision issue. I mean, of course, I did my I went through the whole study checklist. I went through the whole checklist and we did lots of high level gait balance strength, all of the fun stuff. But what happened was he just had eye surgery and his eye surgeon made one eye nearsighted and one eye farsighted which sometimes isn't an issue but for this gentleman his depth perception was off and so what was happening is he was tripping over anything that was less than about of a half inch threshold because he couldn't see it so his latest you know issue was he was leaving a restaurant and going outside there was just a little teensy weensy step down and he didn't see it so he missed it and face planted on the concrete you know so this has nothing to do with rehab you know I was able to give him some some compensatory strategies like you know holding the threshold as he's going through it you know but his son's recommendation was that he needs a cane because his balance is bad and I told him, absolutely not, because now all you're going to do is impale yourself, right, with, with the cane, because his balance was perfect. He actually scored a perfect score on the Fullerton Advanced Balance Scale. And as you guys go and look at that, you're going to be able to see that that's a very high-level balance test. Um, and so for folks that can to do that, it's really not the issue. For him, it was about going back to his eye surgeon um, and having some conversations about tweaking his vision a little bit, maybe with some corrective lenses or, you know, whatever needed to happen, but needed to fix that, okay? So that's why I can't tell you what the best way to fix your falls are until I do a comprehensive fall risk assessment. So hopefully, you know, from the podcast, you guys have taken that, um, you know, that really this comprehensive assessment is super important before we move into any intervention, and these interventions are going to, again, look at medications. It's going to be looking at these medical comorbidities. You know, it's going to be looking at potentially vision, looking at some environmental modifications. So there's some really fun emerging technology like smart home technology and other things that can really help individuals Um, You know, with their supervision, you know, with their fall risk, with other things. So I encourage you guys to find out who's doing, you know, some of that smart home tech in your area and maybe do an in-service at your facility um, because there's some really cool stuff out there and it's changing every day. You know, and then there's exercise, right? There's there's uh, balance and agility training and our strength and power training. So when we talk about exercise, you know, I think the most important thing for us to do is, you know, go back to the basics. What do we know about exercise prescription and exercise management in our older adults? And what we know is when it comes to exercise physiology and exercise prescription, You know, our older adults are really no different than our younger adults or even our athletes. And so we need to look at our exercise science principles and really be able to prescribe exercise at a high enough level. There's some research that's emerging in geriatric rehab is that we're grossly underdosing, you know, our older adults when it comes to exercise. And so, you know, I get people that will say, but Nikki, I'm so afraid that, you know, I'm going to hurt them you know, I argue that you're hurting them by not pushing them hard enough. And so again, if you're able to follow the exercise science principles during your exercise prescription, you know, you're not going to hurt them because you're logically progressing them. And so there's really um, a couple resources that are really great to have available. You know, the American College of Sports Medicine's exercise guidelines for older adults, those are from 2013. You know, we have the International Conference on Frailty and sarcopenia research, um, their exercise guidelines that came out in July of 2021, and those explicitly talk about power. Then we also have, um, you know, the American College of Sports Medicine CDD4 recommendations. And what that stands for is their um, chronic disease and disability recommendations, the fourth edition. And they do a really great job of going through various um, health conditions and talking about how to modify, you know, based on that health condition. And oftentimes they're not very different Um, when it comes to our standard ACSM guidelines, in strength and balance. Usually strength and balance remain the same. It's really the aerobic training um, that gets modified for the CDD4 recommendations. And our aerobic training really isn't as important um, in our fall risk as our strength and balance training is. So oftentimes following you know, our exercise science guidelines for strength and balance training. And we're gonna use the physical stress theory you know that tells us that we must overload that tissue up to a moderate intensity and efforts to, you know, really change any therapeutic adaptation. Also our principle of specificity. So this is where the power comes in. You know, if we're trying to combat sarcopenia, which differentially affects our type two muscle fibers, our fast twitch muscle fibers, to do that, we have to include power training, you know, into our exercise programs. And I would argue agility training too, for that speed component, that reaction time component. So we really need to be doing Um, task specificity. So large, you know, functional training that include speed and agility and strength and power, you know, to combat fall risk. You know, so hopefully, you know, this was helpful for you guys in putting together, you know, how to manage fall risk in looking at things comprehensively Referring out things that are outside of our scope of practice, and then really honing in on the things that are within our scope of practice, you know, particularly exercise management through, um, you know, strength and power training, um, and then balance and agility training. So the references for this are are listed um, in the resource guide, Um, and I encourage you guys to reach out. My email is here on the last slide with any questions, Uh, and I really thank you very much for listening, Um, and let's go out and really make a difference when it comes to falls. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.